Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening. We continue our reflections into this special topic of mercy. We have worked our way through this biblical understanding of mercy as well as a more holistic understanding of the corporal works of mercy. We have gone through each corporal work of mercy, hopefully gaining insight into how to better live the corporal works of mercy. So we now transition into the seven corporal works of mercy. But before we do that, I just want to offer up um, an opening word in regards to the relationship between love itself and mercy. Uh, It was the great English writer C.S. Lewis in his insightful work, The Four Loves, who offered up some rich insight into this fourfold expression of love in its more classical understanding. Eros, that consummative physical love, uh, storge, familial love, philia, that love that some of us are familiar with, huh? that friendship love, and agape, divine love, sacrificial love. And as Lewis points out, all loves are fully realized when they are suffused with divine love, right? The love that is sacrificial. So this love, sacrificial love, is mercy as we look upon the cross as the ark of all mercy. We could say here that Mercy is love when it encounters suffering. Mercy is love when it encounters poverty. And I want to highlight poverty here because to speak of poverty is to speak of what? But being without. The word poverty simply translated means to be without. So mercy sees the absence of something and does something about it. And in the spiritual works of mercy, what we have is an absence of something as it relates to the spiritual life in particular, the life as it seeks to be more whole in Christ. If the corporal works of mercy serve the bodily dimension of who we are, the spiritual works of mercy are at the service of the soul, uh, the soul. So with that, let us take up our first spiritual work of mercy, admonishing the sinner. Now the word admonish comes from the Latin verb monire, which best translates as to warn advise, or alert someone to a threat or danger. Now, as such, its purpose is the good of another. It is an act of love and concern. To admonish the sinner is not to belittle or humiliate him, no. Rather, to alert him to the danger of a sinful course of action. And like all spiritual works of mercy, it is rooted in love, not pride. And for this reason, St. Thomas Aquinas enumerates fraternal correction among one of the great acts of charity. Now, to say that is one thing. (laughs) To live it is another. Now, what virtue alongside of charity and humility help form and inform this moment, this moment where we are called to admonish the sinner? Well, let us go to 1 Peter 3.15. What do we read in 1 Peter 3.15? But in your hearts reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness 
and reverence. Now, we can never speak to these two virtues enough. The virtue of gentleness is not a soft pat on the back, but the attitude by which we are free from harshness and violence. Gentleness is, is not weakness, but the attitude by which we free ourselves from any excess chatter. In this sense, it is closely linked to the virtue of reverence. The virtue of reverence helps us draw back and create space for God to work in each moment and in each encounter. This is very much akin to the virtue of recollection as we've talked about it in the past, that, that virtue of pulling back to see something for what it is. The virtue of reverence does not impose and devour, but proposes and listens. Reverence, my dear friends, gives each and every individual due courtesy and respect as a child of God. The virtues of gentleness and reverence teach us to listen more so as to speak better, as the proverb reminds us. And we could say, collectively then, the interlocking virtues of gentleness and reverence will always invite the conversation to go deeper and are the bridge by which truth shall pass. Now, in our culture today, sadly, admonishing the sinner has fallen out of favor for numerous reasons. Uh, philosophically and sociologically, many have relegated much of morality to the realm of private opinion. We are aware of this. Admonishing is seen by many as an attempt by the admonisher to, uh, we could say, impose his or her values on others or as some sort of unfair or arbitrary judgment. From a psychological standpoint, we live in times of heightened sensitivity, do we not? Times in which many take critiques of their behavior quite personally and have difficulty distinguishing between, say, concerns for behavior and disrespect for the person. Here again, my friends, the virtues of gentleness and reverence help open up the admonishment to what it ought to be. That being said, the obligation remains for us as believers, both to admonish sinners and, and to accept admonishment ourselves. We must remember that the goal is not to tell others how terrible they are. I mean, this is, after all, a work of mercy, right? Neither is the goal to win an argument or, or to feel superior. The goal in this first spiritual work of mercy simply is to win the sinner back from a destructive path and to announce the forgiveness of sins available to all who repent. The goal, my friends, is salvation, right? That being said, admonishing the sinner is not simply a nice thing to get around to if we have time. It is an essential work of grace and love, and it is commanded of us. Remember what Pope Francis said a few weeks ago, that the spiritual works of mercy are equal to the corporal works of mercy, and we will be judged for how much we enter into both of these modes of mercy. Let us turn to some uh, scripture passages here, huh? We have a more famous passage here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18, reads as follows. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus instructs us to speak to a sinning brother or sister and summon him or her to repentance here, huh? And if a private rebuke does not work, others who are trustworthy should be summoned to the task. Of course, assuming the matter is serious. Finally, the church should be informed. If the person will not listen even to the church, then he or she should be excommunicated. This would be the context of being treated as a tax collector or Gentile. And let me say something here, my friends, about excommunication. Before it is anything else, as the spiritual masters remind us, it should be considered a kind of medicine that will inform the sinner of the gravity of the situation. Something that is often forgotten or just not talked about is that a great number of those who have been excommunicated from the church over time have actually reconciled with the church. So an important point to be had there. Now, how about uh, Paul's words to the church of Galatia? Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any sin, you who are spiritual should recall him in a spirit of gentleness. There's that virtue of gentleness again, huh? Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So here, Paul makes clear this call we have to recognize when a person has been overtaken by sin and to correct him. You know, this verse, this is from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, emphasizes that virtue of gentleness. You know, why gentleness? Why reverence? Alongside of what we already said, these are virtues that are disarming. I don't know if you know anyone that is uh, very gentle, that is very reverent. When the gentle person admonishes me or the reverent person admonishes me, I am much more open to that admonishment. To just speak to it in plain terms, I am more open. Conversely, if someone is aggressive with their admonishment, I am much more close. Now, that doesn't mean I shouldn't receive their admonishment. But in the end, if what we're after is the better outcome, uh, the better conversation, then let's take heed to Paul's words here. Gentleness is important. Let's take heed to the importance of gentleness as it is being highlighted in uh, sacred scripture. If we struggle with pride or being unnecessarily harsh in our words of correction, we really are to pray for this fruit of gentleness. Remember, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. So if we are living in the Spirit, if we are abiding in the Spirit, we will come to know this most gracious virtue. And in the end, what you will find is that it gives lasting power to the conversations that we need to have. What's more, when you go through sacred scripture on the passages as they relate to admonishment, it would also seem that uh, patience is also called for, since we must bear the burdens of another sin. Huh? Now, we bear this in two ways. First, we accept the fact that others have imperfections and faults that trouble us. Second, we bear the obligation of helping others to know their sin and to repent. Okay, let us continue to go through some uh, scripture passages here. How about uh, what James has to say? Chapter 5, verse 19. My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever brings back a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
Now, the text is ambiguous as to whose soul is actually saved, but this is probably good, huh? Since it seems that both the corrected and the correcter are really beneficiaries of this spiritual work of mercy, something that we have touched upon before in the corporal works of mercy. It is just not the one receiving the gift, but the one giving the gift. What have we talked about as it relates to the nature of love itself? If you want the divine life of God to live within you, what do you need to do? Give it away, because the divine life of love, by its very nature, is sacrificial. So the more you give yourself over to those who are in need, the more love will fill you up. In this way, a gift is always mutual. A gift always involves two people. All right, here we have another passage, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. If anyone refuses to obey what we say in this letter, note that man and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not look on him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Here we have that word admonishment really come through here, that warning, that advisement, huh? How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6? We instruct you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to shun any brother who walks in a disorderly way and not according to the tradition they received from us. And again, that word tradition in the Latin tradere, to hand on. Paul is taking the moral prescription that was given to him by the apostles, and he's handing it on. Huh? He's letting us know how to be better versions of who God is calling us to be. Admonishment is part of the prescription of conversion. This is what Paul wants us to see. Elsewhere in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And here we should highlight wisdom, should we not? Because wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Huh? You've heard me talk about this before where, you know, Satan has a supreme intellect, but does he have wisdom? No, because wisdom always starts on bended knee, and Satan has no knees. He doesn't know humility. Huh? So when we admonish another, it is just never enough that we have the knowledge of what they've done. No, we should take that to prayer so as to better understand how to engage the person in the admonishment itself. Wisdom in its Greek Sophia literally means insight. Insight into the knowledge that you've received. How the knowledge that you have received can build up the body of Christ. That's what wisdom is about. We also have in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So here we have this classic text that speaks to the inspiration of sacred scripture, the theotnoustos in the Greek. God breathed, right? Breathed life into the very word of God. And so this is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction. So once again, we are made to look at sacred scripture as a moral prescription. Jesus Christ came to establish the objective moral standard. He said what in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, but the way. Huh? It's in the absolute imperative sense. And he shows us what it means to be fully human. 
And we are to learn from this. And we are to see his own life, of course, as the model and those who follow him as subsequent models to gain a deeper appreciation of what it means to live a life of moral uprightness. Now, this is what the word justice and righteousness speaks to, this moral uprightness, this moral holiness. Okay, how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14? There's more verses here. And we exhort you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Again, admonish the unruly, warn them, advise them, show them the destruction of their behavior, show them why the path they are going down will lead to a cliff, right? That being said, as we speak to admonishment, we should offer up a word on judgment. Now, I often hear from different people that they do not confront the issue at hand because they feel that they are judging someone, and I get that. You don't want to come across as judging someone. But we must remember that God does not condemn the judgment of something if it is breaking down the body of Christ, that which is objective, uh, external, revealed, seen. He condemns the judgment of someone when we are critical of why they do what they do. For this we do not know. That is the subjective realm, the realm of what is internal, hidden, unseen. So we must also be sure that we are not premature in our judgments. What, of, what is objective will always be seen for what it is, but sometimes this takes time. I mean, consider here the parable of the weeds among the wheat. The servants go out and identify weeds growing in the wheat. But what is apparent is that they may be inaccurate in their identification of which shoots are weeds and which are wheat. The Greek word used in this passage for weeds identifies a particular kind of weed, which interestingly, in its initial stages of growth, actually resembles quite closely those of other weeds? No, wheat. And so when you read the passage and you find it in Matthew chapter 13, our Lord said to the servants that the enemy has what? Planted such weeds. Now, I believe part of Satan's plan here was to confuse the servants. Remember, this is his function to confuse to think that they saw weeds, when in fact they were actually looking at the wheat. The servants asked their master if they should pull up the weeds. Our Lord, of course, being the master of truth, reminds his servants what? That judgment can only be made at the full maturation of one's life. So, before you make a judgment, be patient and discern well. Okay, so for all that being said... <laughs> We therefore, in the aforementioned virtues we have discussed, have the obligation to offer fraternal correction when it is appropriate because it keeps us in the moral standards set up by Christ. If we want to live in Christ in a more vibrant way, then we have to say no to one thing, mindful that we are saying yes to another thing. I mean, if you were to think about what we are talking about as it relates to judging practically, you know, why do we have officers of law if not for the objective standard that establishes right from wrong, right? If I'm pulled over by a police officer because I was going over the speed limit by 50 miles per hour, what would the officer say if I told him it's okay to go over the speed limit by 50 miles per hour? Huh? At the very least, 
the officer would remind me that going 80 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour uh, zone is what? Against the law, right? And in doing so, what kind of statement would he be making? But an objective statement, a statement of fact. There are civil standards that serve the greater order of the whole of society. We call this a moral consensus. I think we all get that right. Well, my dear friends, likewise, Christ has set up moral standards of truth for the greater order of the whole of the kingdom of God. We have the responsibility, like that of a police officer, to reprove when necessary. And again, always in the spirit of charity. Charity gentleness, and reverence. And maybe we should also add here courage, huh? Courage. You know, loving is more than just affirming whatever someone is doing with no regard into whether or not what that person is doing is right or wrong. No, that isn't love. Love is always rooted in moral truth. And so if there is something that is wrong, then you simply point the way. You simply point the way. And for all of this, what is at the heart of this first spiritual work of mercy? Well, what is at the heart of all of the works of mercy? Freedom. If we wish to be free, then we need to live in the law of Christ, the Beatitudes, which really are the charter to freedom. Huh? So we are free to the extent that we live according to the law of God, which has been revealed so as to be studied, understood, and integrated. One of the themes that has been emerging for me recently in not only uh, the radio programming, but also in some of the, the talks and lectures that I give, that understanding a truth is never enough. It is the first step, but that truth always has to be integrated. What did we just say about the nature of love huh? and the divine life of love living within us? If we think we possess God by in understanding a particular truth, a particular doctrine, but then we don't integrate it into our everyday life, then we have failed Christianity. It is never enough to just understand. It is what that looks like in a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, understanding a particular truth about Jesus Christ is very important because it should encourage us to go deeper in a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it never stops there because our baptismal vocation is more than just the in-God moment, it is also tied to the for-other moment. So we live in God, abide in God, and then we exist for other. We exist for neighbor. And so charity very much rests at the heart of our faith and very much rests at the heart of this first spiritual work of mercy. Now, another question posed by the spiritual masters on this work of mercy is why do we fail to admonish sinners? I mean, typically, if you are anything like me, it is because we want our lives to be more pleasant, right? <laughs> we cannot bear the, the backlash that sometimes comes when we warn people who do not want to be warned. But as the likes of a St. Ignatius of Loyola would remind us, if we yield to this fear, we are showing that we love ourselves too much and do not love God and others enough. I mean, think about that. Is that what's going on with you drawing back from this spiritual work of mercy? Are we yielding to a fear? Here we have to allow 
I think the spiritual masters to really challenge us. Yes, these are strong words, but they are words that really need to draw us out into God's light. Now, the last thing about this first spiritual work of mercy, it should bring us back to the importance of self-knowledge, a principle of, of our transformation in Christ that I've talked about before. What is self-knowledge? Well, acquiring a cognitive knowledge of your weaknesses, your sins, your attachments, so as to overcome them and to work against them. I often like to give the example of when I was playing basketball in high school. You know, my junior year in high school, I was still very weak in dribbling the ball with with my left hand. Naturally, I'm right-handed. So in my drive to the basket, I would always go to my right side. It was just my tendency, my natural tendency. So my coach pulled me aside and said, you need to work on your left hand. You can dribble the ball up the court okay with your left hand, but because you don't feel confident enough with it, you won't drive hard to the basket with your left hand. Now, what would that look like if I looked at my coach and said, well, that's not the case. I don't really need to worry about that. Well, at the very least, am I going to be the best basketball player that I could possibly be? No. No, I needed to work on my left-handed dribble. I needed to work on my drive going to my left. And guess what? I was a better basketball player for it. And you want to know what? My coach was right. And so in a similar way, when we have to work on something in the spiritual life, someone comes over to you and says, hey, I think you need to work on this or you need to work on that. As hard as it might be to hear, if it is something that you need to work on, heed that warning, heed that advice. Because if you don't, What does that word admonishment mean? (laughs) To warn of a destructive path? We don't want to be walking down a destructive path. So we really do need to pay close attention to what admonishment is all about. So in the end, we are to pray for the courage and humility to admonish sinners and the grace to do it in love. And we are also to pray for the willingness to accept corrections and for the grace to see it as an act of love even if it is not always so artfully done, even if it is not always so artfully done. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. Once again, if you have any questions, comments, or observations about this evening's program, please go to my email at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org, j-o-e-h-o-l-l-c-r-a-f-t.org. Send your question, comment, observation on its way and I will gladly respond to you and uh, talk about your subject matter here on Seeds of Truth. So with that, let us close. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.